Hello and welcome to this week's Key Voices, conversations with folk in and around education. I'm Caroline Doherty. Before we begin, just a quick reminder that this podcast is an opportunity to open up debate and discussion around issues. The views my guests and I are about to express are not the view of the key. For in-depth authoritative articles on the latest issues in education, check out thekeysupport.com. So today I am super delighted to have Laura McInerney with me. Laura is co-founder of TeacherTap, former editor of Schools Week and Guardian Education columnist. Hello, Laura. Good morning. Thank you for joining us on the podcast again. Um, so since we last had you on the podcast in the summer, what's been going on at TeacherTap? Um, well, all kinds. We've, we've grown in numbers. We've now got about 6,800 teachers on there every day. Fantastic. So that's pretty exciting. Um, and obviously we had the general election, so we oh, were yeah. able to I use... that. <laughs> I mean, it came and went quite quickly. Yeah. And I was on holiday for two weeks, which was great in the middle of it. So frankly, for me, it was oh, yeah. but a blip. Um, but actually, we were able to do some really interesting mm. polling because Teacher Tap started in 2017, just after the oh. former, uh, the prior general election. So we had some data from that. We then, over time, been checking political mm. sentiment. And then this was the first time we got to have a really big look at how much people moved on their voting yeah. behavior and everything else. That was very exciting. Great stuff. Um, so uh, I'm, I'm an avid uh, watcher of, of what you do, and I'm really fascinated to know kind of what you're learning about the innermost motivations of, of, of teachers. Some really, really searching questions you're asking on, on the app there. What have you been, what have you been learning? So the way that TeachTap works is that each day teachers all across mm. the country get these three questions. And that means over time we're gradually able to learn a picture of teachers' lives that's more rich than we, we've been mm. able to do before. Um, one of the reports that we did, possibly last time we'd just spoken, had done the Teacher Gap report. Mm. So that enabled us to look at why teachers go and work in certain schools, for example. So we know that there are some teachers who love working in challenging circumstances, whether that's with communities that have got less income or whether it's a school that's in turnaround, it's inadequate, requires improvement. And then there are other teachers who just have a much bigger preference for being in outstanding schools. And when you look to see what that's about, there are some teachers after a couple of years who think, I just do not want to deal with bad behavior. Mm. I really don't. And so we see a preference as teachers get older for moving towards outstanding schools largely to escape bad behavior. So that's an institutional way of thinking about teachers. What, which schools do they go to? Mm. We've now started to look at, well, why do people get into teaching in the first place? And we asked a question recently, which asked people to look back into time mm. and say, what was it about teaching that made you come into this career? And for the vast majority of people, it's about making a difference. Whether that's making a difference in society or making a difference to children, that's what they say really motivated Mm. them. Uh, The next most important thing for most of them is that they wanted to work with children in particular. And that's particularly true for primary school teachers. So secondary school teachers more likely to like their subject. Primary school teachers do come in because they think, I'm a person who Mm. likes children. I should teach. And then much lower down the bill, we get about a fifth of teachers, one in five said the pay and the holidays are what matters to them. Mm. I was surprised that wasn't higher. Okay. Because another question we did about the same time said, if you could find another job on the same salary, Mm. would you leave teaching? And around half of teachers said they would. Crumbs. 
So there is a lock yeah. on teachers with that salary. It does matter. It might not be the initial motivation, mm. but actually long term, it does make a big difference to people saying in the profession. Yeah. And the other thing that was interesting was when we analysed these motivations by age... People in their 50s had quite different motivations, allegedly, okay. than those in their 20s. Tell us more. So those in their 20s were much more likely to say they wanted to make a difference, whereas those in their 50s were more likely to say that the pay and the holidays mattered. Mm. Now, one theory we got for this was, well, that's because as people get older, yeah. they just become more jaded. They think, okay. I'm not going to make a difference to society. <laughs> Actually, I know my pay is coming in, so that's, that's really why I came. And they paid more by that point. Yep, possibly. Yeah, possibly. Um, but we asked them to cast their minds back, okay. right? Right, okay. So yeah. it's quite interesting mm. that it looks like either people in their 50s just had completely different motivations mm. than Ooh, today's okay. millennials, and there is an argument that it's young people today are motivated by social change. Yeah. Or my hunch is that it might be the people who come in for less of the making a difference and more of the practical aspects who survive. Okay. Now, this is supposed to be true within politics. There's been a Ooh. number of political studies that show politicians who are extremely motivated to get a difference are more likely to leave because when it doesn't happen, mm. they bump up against the system, they get demotivated, the yeah. whole purpose of being there isn't working, so they leave. Whereas if what they're very motivated by is power mm. and actually they just want to be the person in charge, mm. then even if it's not going your way, you're still in charge and it's all good. So I wonder if there's something about people who come in and say, well, the pay matters and the holiday matters. Mm. Those things don't go away. Even if you're having yeah. a horrible year, yeah, you can true. stay motivated by that. Then we've got to be wary of comparing politicians and teachers. <laughs> well, but I, you know, humans yeah, no, are no, humans. I, no, I completely agree. I just... Um, I think of all of those surveys of trusted people and uh, <laughs> a lot of clear water between people teaching and people who are politicians and levels of trust. Uh, but yeah, that's a, that's a fascinating thought. Uh, yeah, thinking about, as you say, casting people's minds back and that initial motivation and, and, and how it, it, it changes. And um, I think behaviour is a really, um, really interesting uh, point there. I was, I was really struck by a recent uh, question that you had a, around... Uh, what an, I think is it about what an ideal lesson would look like mm. for you and um, people, children are following instructions first time, yet only 80% of people take yes. that. Yeah, so I was like, who are these 20% of people who in their <laughs> ideal world, children kick off whenever you yeah. ask them to do things? But that also comes back to the idea that perhaps some teachers feel that a bit of a, bit of a rebellion from kids, a bit of not mm. always following every order mm. is quite healthy and is quite important. Or to them as an individual just may not be what they went into teaching for. Yeah. It may be that for them it doesn't matter if the children mm. aren't following instructions as long as they're learning. Mm. An ideal lesson is about the learning, yeah. not about the behaviour. Very, very true. And I, I know you've asked some, some questions around sort of um, recognition uh, for teachers around the time of the, the honours uh, coming out. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> what did you what did you learn from that yeah we wanted to know if people would accept honors mm. there is quite a big tradition now of giving honors by which we mm. mean OBs, cbs yeah. knighthoods damehoods to people in education and i think the government in the last 10 years have tried really hard to recognize people all across the school sector mm. when i was over as the editor of schools week we often did stories around janitors school librarians people who yeah. worked as teaching assistants i remember there was a janitor who gave I can't remember which organ it was, probably oh. a kidney, to a, 
a student. Wow. And really, the things that people do for yeah. their pupils is incredible. So we said, would you accept one? The majority of people said yes, but what mm. we noticed is that head teachers said yes at the highest rates of all by okay. far. And therefore, we think there's something about head teachers wanting public recognition. Mm. And we've seen in other questions that they often they often hanker after recognition from parents where they don't feel that they get it, whereas mm. classroom teachers do. If you think about being a primary school teacher, the likelihood is, especially in the younger years, you see the parents reasonably often. Yeah. You're stood at the door at the end of the day. If there's yeah. any issues, you get to hear about them, but you do also get the praise. Yeah. Primary teachers get the most Christmas presents. They get the most end-of-year presents. Yeah. Whereas head teachers really tend to see parents when they're angry. Mm. Um, in secondary school, it's often when things are very, very complicated. Yeah. And so... Where do you get recognition yeah. from if you're the leader of a school yeah. and it's your job to be recognising everybody else well, all the time? Exactly, and you're in those kind of formal formal situations, standing up on, on stage, thanking everybody else who yeah. did the play and all, all that kind of stuff, and you don't get those interactions and that, and that, and that feedback yourself. I think, I think that is uh, very, very true. Um, and anything that you're, that you're learning about what, you know, I, I think... We've talked quite a bit about the, what keeps people in teaching and kind of re retention. And I know flexible, flexible working is something that um, uh, is being talked about quite a lot. Great to see it being kind of talked up by the, the DfE as well. I know it's something that, that you have um, some strong opinions about as, as well. Um, but what are, what are teacher tappers' uh, thoughts about, about flexible working options? Yeah, I'm often seen as like the flexible working witch, I think. <laughs> sort of fly in with all the bad news. I don't have strong opinions on it in that I don't mm. think it's a bad thing. I think going back to the ideal mm. world. In an ideal world, would everybody be happier if they were able to work the hours that were convenient to mm. them, able, enable them to do their hobbies, mm. to look after their families, see their friends? Absolutely. There's just a couple of things that bother me. Mm. And one is that we have a demographic dip at the moment. So mm. we have very, very few older teenagers. The kind of 18 to 21 group is quite limited. In two years' time, the group that will come out of university is the smallest cohorts that we've, we've wow. got and have had for about 25 years either side. Oh, interesting. Well, 20 years on one side, mm. <laughs> 25 on the other. Um, and that means that the number of adults who would normally be coming into teaching mm. could be quite small because they're quite a small group. We also see increasingly graduate employers wanting to balance out their gender intake to be 50-50 mm. at least because of the pressure from pay audits. Yeah. So you've now got big pharmaceutical companies, accountants, legal companies really chasing after female graduates mm. who've traditionally been a mainstay particularly for the primary sector and a yeah. little bit for the secondary. So if we have a small number or a smaller cohort of people coming in, mm. can we afford to lose people if we push part-time working mm. as a retention option? Do we have evidence that more people will be retained yeah. than we leave, mm. than we'll leave? Yeah. And so we've been asking lots of questions over the years about preferences on mm. part-time working, and we finally got a question that works. Okay. So we said... If your head teacher could not refuse a request for part-time mm. working and accepting that whatever you ask for, you will take a hit on your salary, yeah. what would you ask for? Okay. And the majority of people don't want five days. Mm. So about 55% pick something that isn't five days. Mm. The biggest group pick four days. 
and then you have some on four and a half days, three and a half mm. days, three days two, and whatever. When you add up how many teachers you'd need to replace all of those people, it's about 55,000. To put that into context, we train about 30,000 a year, yeah. but about 70% of those actually come into the profession, the others mm. leave. So you're looking at at least two years' yeah. worth of extra mm. teachers coming in, not losing really anybody, um, or we would need about 10, maybe 15% yeah. of everyone who's ever left teaching to come back. And you'd hope they'd yeah. come back full time. But then Ooh. we have to calculate the fact that actually a lot of them would come back part time. Yeah. So in an ideal world, mm. would we do it? Yes. Yeah. Do we have the people available? Not no. right now. No. Even if the DfE suddenly said, OK, we'll double the numbers of people mm. we're training. Could they find them? Probably not, because they don't yet exist. No. The good news is we have lots and lots and lots of nine-year-olds. Like, just they're just coming <laughs> out of their ears. If you've got one at home, you know, they're just ten a penny. Okay. Um, so in about ten years' time, this might be much more doable. Yeah. So maybe work on the nine-year-olds now, so they're thinking about teaching for yes. the long term. <laughs> yes. And one thing we've discovered is you're more likely to go on to become a head teacher if you were the narrator or the innkeeper in nativity plays. Wow. So what we should do is find those children and really start them now on an early education path. Tell them that they are the future of teaching tomorrow. Okay. Mmm, that is... <laughs> that's blowing my mind. Uh... Nativity determinism, we call it. <laughs> I'm, I was the angel Gabriel. What does the future hold for me? I, so the, I think it comes down to whether or not you had to speak in a declarative voice. Okay. Yeah, I did. I did. I spoke um, very, very quickly. <laughs> wow. Okay. Inter very, very interesting stuff. I think it's fair to say that you're, you know, you're looking at it from a system level mm. and the sustainable, you know, is it a sustainable option and, and how would it work at a, a system level? Um, I, yeah, uh, that is... That is a, a very interesting challenge. Uh, it's also worth looking at this at the yeah. school level, though, mm. which is, um, so we asked all these people, what would you do? Mm. And then we asked them, How, well, have you asked for part-time yeah. working? There is actually nothing to stop 55% mm. of people doing this. The majority, vast majority, said no. Then we asked why people weren't asking for this. Yeah. And, of course, the majority think their head teacher would say no. Over 70% think it would be difficult to do their mm. teaching job part-time. Yeah. And over 70% felt that it would be damaging to their career. Men had a 10% higher mm. rate belief that, that going part-time would be damaging. Yeah. So we don't see men going part-time as much. They're much more yeah. nervous about it. And yesterday I found a mum's net thread looking at this very issue. So they'd got the TeachTap data, okay. and then they were sharing their experiences of, t of, of whether mm. they'd ask for part-time working. And, you know, there was just hundreds of people discussing mm. whether or not their requests for part-time working had been taken seriously, and what they found was a lot of them had teaching and learning responsibilities taken away. They were asked after a year to come back full-time, or they couldn't carry on. Yeah. And so it, it's not irrational here mm, for no. people to think that there is a issue with asking for part-time mm. working and we have to get into a little bit where that's coming from and I think you know a, a, a challenge for you know school leaders and I speak as a as a governor um, who has you know considered uh, the, these questions as well is um, you know it is something that is at the school's discretion mm -hmm. And, you know, often um, there are so much uh, policy and uh, compliance 
that you know your, your your other decisions aren't really your decisions. You kind of have to do what you have to do, and and this is an area where you know if you have a strong commitment to making it work and 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 think you know a bit more holistically about you know HR personnel staffing how it how it all fits together. Um, you know you, you can you can offer more, um, but then you might also get asked for more. And it's it, I think it is a it's a you know it it really requires a, a lot of thought and what might start that thought process off is the, the first, you know, particularly the first male teacher who asks to work flexibly and you're there going, okay, hang on a minute, this is what was I was expecting or planning for or got insure, you know, it, I think there's a, there is a real lack of um, understanding about sharing practice as well, you know, school, school to school. There's also an approach that John Coles, who's now the head of United Learning, mm. He took when he was uh, in the Department for Education about 20 years ago now, and he was given the task of making sure that every classroom had 30 pupils in it. Mm. Now, that's a really challenging thing to do. At the time, he was told it was impossible. Yeah. But John's from a maths background, and he said, you know, the thing with mathematical problems is they look impossible until you solve them, <laughs> and then they're possible and yeah. you can't unsee it. And what he worked out was there were a finite number of reasons why children couldn't be in classes of 30. For example, twins mm. cause you a problem. Mm. Um, you think there's going to be one child there and then actually there's two and then can, you can't separate them out across schools and so yeah. you'll bung them in, but then you've got 31. Okay. Yeah. So what he did was he sort of listed out what the problems were and then gradually came up with solutions for each one. And I wonder whether there's a similar mm. approach with part-time working. A classic example is, what if parents' evenings are on your day off? Mm. Are you required to go or not? And the Burgundy book paying conditions were not written with this kind of stuff in mind. So it seems as if if you work at all on the day, if you work period mm. one and period two and a parent's evening is in the evening, you are actually required to be there. Yeah. So if we were to list what are the 10 yeah. issues with part-time working, gradually knock the solutions mm. up for each one, could we end up with a nice, a nice little guide that says 80% yeah. of the time, if you follow these... All of those problems will go away. That's, I think, where we should head. Mm. And it is being nim nimble enough, I think, as well to, you know, often it just comes down to, well, it's easier if there's just, you know, one size, one size fits all here. And by its definition, flexible working requires, okay, maybe this person isn't going to do as many lunch duties as that person. And everybody needs to be okay with that. Otherwise, you're just going to keep knocking up against these issues of why do I have to come in on my day? You know, mm -hmm. it is... It is, it is tough, um, but as I say, probably m more, more to be do done about sharing practice and, and helping, helping schools through those decisions, because I feel like it's something that, you know, a lot of, a lot of companies, you know, flexible working is the, is the norm, and as you say, if we're competing for that graduate talent pool, um, it, it is something that, that's going to hit schools um, more. So, as you mentioned earlier, we, ha we have just had an election, uh, <laughs> and we've sort of got a new government. Um, <laughs> Uh, what, do you, what, do you, what, what, what are you learning about that in the, in the first instance and what are your kind of predictions for what a conservative majority government might, might mean for us all? So what we've learned is that teachers in this last election did largely stay with Labour. Mm. For the intervening period between 2017 and the 2019 election, mm. we did find there was a shift and lots more teachers said they were considering voting Lib Dem at mm. one point, uh, whatever they're called, TIG, the group for, independent group for change yeah, oh or gosh. whoever. So <laughs> teachers were very yeah. um, flippy. Mm. Uh, they weren't happy with Labour, mm. but in the end when it came down to it, our 
group which tends to be very very similar to what you see in national mm. polls we had 55% Labour 19% Liberal Democrat and 10% Conservative which is roughly where we ended up uh, in 2017 yeah. what will be interesting is we find over time that people change and they tell mm. us they voted a certain way that they didn't okay. tell us at the time because we were, we were asking people what they were thinking of voting yeah, and, and then, then we've asked they what they vote, vote. Yeah. and then over time we'll say how did mm. you vote and they'll change, they'll change <laughs> because it will be inconvenient to have voted certain ways um, okay. so we saw that they, Labour was losing ground but eventually they appeared mm. to be the stickiest people who'd voted for them in 2017 voted for them again um, I think in terms of just where the Conservative government will be on the basis of journalism mm. and other stuff that I do the biggest thing is free schools a lot of the people back in number 10 now were involved in the free schools yeah. programme early in 2010 through 2013 I think it's a policy they're comfortable with. They know how the messages sell. We do also have this demographic bubble of nine-year-olds hitting up yeah. into secondary. So they've got to open new schools. Mm -hmm. And why not brand it with something that is associated with the Conservative Party? And that way, if you've got parents who are panicked that their kid isn't going to mm. get into a secondary school nearby, here comes a yeah. free school that was sent to us by the Conservative Party. Mm. Great, great politics. There's obviously a concern around school funding. Yeah. Every year on New Year, we ask our teachers what should be the focus for the Education Secretary this year. It's always overwhelmingly school yeah. funding, um, a little bit on school recruitment, and then basically nothing else. Yeah. Yeah. The Conservatives are pledging a mm. levelling up of funding yeah. to get on with the national funding formula. And they've started putting little, little pots of cash out for extracurricular, yeah. for music, for performing arts. Yeah. So we'll see maybe a drip feed coming back to schools. And do you think that will come alongside a bit more scrutiny of finance in, in schools and more kind of resource management and, and these sorts of the things? The scrutiny has already arrived. Yeah. So obviously we've got resource managers mm. and advisors going into schools. Lord Agnew, who's currently the Academy's schools minister, uh, Academy's minister, if you like, mm. is, is really hot on this. He said a lot of scrutiny about CEO and Academy mm. Trust leader pay. Ofsted have said they're yeah. going to pilot going into schools and looking at their finances, mm. which I believe happened in colleges as well. Mm. So there is some more scrutiny coming on mm. finance. The question will be, is anyone competent to do it? Mm. And also, how do you balance whether you're looking at value for money? Value for money for whom? Yeah. Value for money to learning, yeah. to all of society, to certain groups. Mm. And how much are you looking for non sort of fraudulent activity yeah. or non-compliant activity because they're two very different mm. things what if you have someone whose value for money is awesome but their compliance is terrible yeah. versus yeah. someone who's incredibly compliant but that means that their value for money mm. is lower mm. in an ideal world you want both yeah. but i can see now how once this becomes a big thing of scrutiny mm. you start to get some gaming yeah yeah um. <laughs> I think that's fair to say. And in terms of the um, free schools, do you, do you see those uh, maybe in some of the, the areas that went over to the, the Conservatives? Do, do you think those would, um, parents or, or other groups, or would those be run with Academy chains? What are your thoughts there? I have my mischief face on now because... <laughs> well, I can confirm. <laughs> well, I came into journalism from mm. teaching over a row to do with me asking to see some free school documents. And at the time I asked because I was doing a PhD and I wanted to see mm. the data, I didn't think there was anything terrible in them. Over time, what I learned was it has always appeared that the first few waves mm. were given to some groups in marginal constituencies 
really as a way of winning over or saying mm. thank you for their support in the general election. That's certainly what the mm. numbers would suggest yeah. and the evidence that I've seen and the documents that I've got would suggest. Um, that makes me a little nervous that this becomes a very political game. Mm. On the other hand, I will say that over the years at Schools Week, whenever we analysed, for example, funding decisions of the Conservative government um, mm. and the coalition, they didn't tend to favour their own constituencies. Mm. Whereas Labour, from the late 90s yeah. through the 2000s, did chuck money into cities and poorer mm. areas, which were their yeah. predominant places. So... I feel on free schools there yeah. has been political manoeuvring, yeah. but I can't say that that's always the way that the Conservatives work. No, and it's, I guess it's fair to say if there's a, there's a feeling that those um, areas have been left behind or whatever language that you want to use, they'd be good places to have you know, good schools in and let's, you know, and let's hope they would be. Um, so, yeah, that's... Um, uh, any, other, any, other, any other thoughts about... about do, do we think there'll be changes at the department or...? or anything like that. I think Nick Gibbs probably <laughs> in it for the long haul. <laughs> yeah, possibly. I, I, can't, I still can't work out whether Nick Gibb will ever get to be Education Secretary or if mm. he just likes being the perpetual schools minister. Yeah, I hope he does. He'll <laughs> just be put there forever. We'll sort of give him an, an honorary position or something. Um, no, I don't, I don't know. I'm not close enough on the, mm. on the ministerial lineup. But I think the team at the moment there are all quite focused and, and sensible, mm. um, even if I don't think Gavin Williamson so far has been particularly like devastatingly charismatic there. or anything. <laughs> um, and finally, uh, you you ask questions on all sorts of things. Um, can you tell us some of your weirdest and, and wackiest uh, findings over the last wee while? Yeah, my favourite recently was inspired by a junior doctor who was asking a question of doctors mm. and saying, do you think it would be acceptable for a colleague to drink a non-alcoholic beer during a shift? Yeah. Which I thought was a really interesting question. So we asked teachers, would it be appropriate either for a colleague to be drinking a beer mm. in the staff room at lunchtime, an alcoholic one, mm. or what about a non-alcoholic beer? Yeah. Almost nobody thought it was acceptable to be drinking beer in a lunchtime Phew. in a school. <laughs> um, so that was about 3% yeah. of people. Who knows? That might just be random error at that point. <laughs> but only 3% of people thought that was fine. However, 53% also thought it was inappropriate to drink a non-alcoholic beer mm. in the staff room at lunchtime. Why would that be? Well, lots of the feedback we got was that people might smell it on them and think it's real. Mm. It looks unprofessional. Yeah. Um, it, it just isn't something that we should be doing. Mm. And of course, other people who'd said it was fine just thought this was logically yeah. didn't make any sense yeah. it's no different than drinking coca-cola or mm. ginger beer which yeah. says the word beer on it yeah. or anything else but it goes to show you that when we're making decisions in schools about our policies they're not always rational mm. there is mm. rationally yeah. nothing wrong with drinking a non-alcoholic no. beer but there is something emotional there is a kind of an ethical concern we mm. could be seen to be doing the wrong thing and even by being seen to be yeah. doing the wrong thing we are therefore doing the wrong thing so it was a lovely finding to show mm. you how when developing policies when thinking about how you do stuff in school a lot is about the show and the performance but that might really matter to how people feel mm. about your community we've also just started some work um, on teacher tap Ghana 
which is really exciting. Um, so we're, we're launching out in Ghana um, as, as part of a project there. And already we're starting to see when you look at our questions, the teachers there are saying this question doesn't make any sense. So, for example, detentions um, just don't appear to be a thing in Ghana, which when you think about it, why, why would you keep the naughtiest children at the end of the day? <laughs> why wouldn't you send the naughtiest children home to their parents and then keep the good ones? Oh, wow. And you, you start thinking it through and you're like, oh, oh yeah, of course. Yeah. So the power of, the power of Teach Tap has always mm. been in the fact that what you think is totally sensible, when you ask everybody across the country, might yeah. not be totally sensible. And if we start asking people across the world, then really it could explode quite a lot of our foundational beliefs. Oh my goodness. I, I am beyond fascinated that you're going <laughs> global. That's, that's brilliant. Why Ghana? Um, we're actually doing it as a project with the um, Department for International Development. Oh, fantastic. Oh, amazing. Well, um, when, you, when you next come to visit us at Key Voices, we will, we will hopefully learn more, more about that. Thank you so much, uh, Laura. Can you just give people um, details of, of TeacherTap if they're not aware and they want to, to get involved? Yep, so TeacherTap, T-A-P-P, because it's the app that you tap each day. <laughs> um, it's on the app stores, whichever one you use, uh, it's free, or you can come to the website teachertap.co.uk. Um, and there is now going to be a Ghana version of that as well. So if you find yourself in Ghana, <laughs> do download it there. And uh, yeah, brilliant stuff. Well, thank you so much again. And thank you very much for listening. Key Voices is produced by The Key, giving education leaders the knowledge to act. Members of The Key for School Leaders can access hundreds of articles on the latest issues in education at thekeysupport.com. And please tell us what you think of the podcast. Rate, review and subscribe or email me at caroline.doherty at thekeysupport.com with your thoughts and suggestions.